That's the prayer, isn't it? Make us more like you. And the way the Lord does that is through speaking to us through through his word. Not voices in your head, not still small voices, not promptings or premonitions. God speaks through his objective truth, which is his revealed word. And that's why we're here. That's why we're gathered to to worship the Lord and for God to be able to speak to us. And as he speaks to us, he transforms us into, into his image. And the word of God at times corrects, at times it rebukes very strongly, at times it exhorts, at times it builds up, it applies like a balm whenever we, whenever we, we, we need it, it knocks off the rough edges. It fills in the, the gaps. It, it's, it's everything. Jesus said, sanctify them by thy truth. Your word is truth. John seventeen seventeen. the prayer that Jesus prayed for the disciples and for us, for all those who would believe after him, was that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart unto God's use, that we would be, we, we would be restored in the image that, that God established to begin with, and that would happen by the truth. The truth will set you free, Jesus said. And so the Spirit of God this morning takes the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and He wields it. And it's a two-edged sword. It, it wounds and it also, it also heals. It, it, uh, it cuts deeply. It, it excises things that, that don't need to, to be there. And yet you also know that, that until those things are drawn out of our lives, true healing can't can can take place. It is a it's a it's a joy. It's a privilege. It's all we have. It's it, my opinions are meaningless. Your thoughts and opinions are meaningless. Obviously, the talking heads on TV are meaningless. What we want to hear: What does God say? Right? That's what we want to hear. What does the Lord have to say? And we have a passage before us that that is that's significant, and that's an understatement. And I'm sure you probably always you you've heard the familiar statement: you can't judge a book by its cover, right? You probably you probably experienced that truth all too well. The, the statement is intended to remind us that the outside of something is not always a good indicator of, of what's on the inside. And and I say you probably experienced that because no doubt you have you have purchased something online or you saw something on TV. You looked at a hotel, a vacation spot, a product, whatever it was, and and you ordered it. And then when it got home, when when, when it got to you, it wasn't even close to what what you thought it was going to be. What the way that it was the way that it was presented. And the point is, the outside is not a complete picture. You have to look both at the outside and the inside to get an accurate assessment. Of, of what something really is or what a person is really made of. And only God can look on the inside. You, you remember that, that famous passage in 1 Samuel chapter 16 where, where Samuel the prophet is going to anoint God's king in replacement of Saul. And, and, and Eliab comes, the, the firstborn, the strong one, and Samuel says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And what does God say to him? You're looking on the outside. But I look upon the heart. And they go through all of the sons, and there's none left except this little boy David out back. And he is God's chosen chosen king. You have to look both on the inside and the outside to get an accurate assessment 
And that's what the Bible does for us. It's a mirror. It gives us an accurate assessment of the inside. Well, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is going to teach us that, that lesson in spiritual matters. He, he does that through an encounter with a group of religious leaders. And following this unparalleled revelation that Jesus is the I am that walks on the sea, Mark takes us to this heated encounter with a, with a group of religious leaders who confront Jesus about his failure to keep the traditions of the elders. Hence the title that you see on the screen. It's a lesson about majoring on the externals. And it's how scripture-denying tradition leads to a misdiagnosis of a person's true spiritual condition. And the story begins in verse 1 of chapter, of chapter 7 and goes all the way through verse 23. We're not going to be able to get through all of that this morning. But it works from the outside in. It starts with the Pharisees that are looking only on the outside, and then Jesus ends up giving us a, a picture of the inside and declares what actually defiles a, a, a person. He gives the, the real diagnosis of the heart. And, and it starts in, in, in verse 1 with the Pharisees and the scribes confronting Jesus about the externals. And then it moves to a declaration that, that Jesus makes about them from the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah the prophet. You probably see that in italics or offset some way in your Bible, beginning in verse 6. And then he provides an example to them and to us about how, how the traditions of the elders were doing that. And then he, he speaks to the crowd. He starts to, to move from the outer issues to, to, to the heart. He, he gives this general teaching to the crowd about about what actually defiles. And, and then the final scene is this private explanation that Jesus gives to his disciples in verses 17 through, through 23. And I would say, verses 17 through 23, this is not, a, not an over, uh, overestimation or an exaggeration. I would say verses 17 through 23 is, is probably the most succinct and, and the clearest biblical anthropology in all of the Bible. It ends with divine revelation about what does defile us and where spiritual defilement comes from. Now, you, you, see, the, you see the title there about traditions and you hear, and I want, I want to just prepare you ahead of time. This is not another sermon on legalism, although it's about, about legalism. This is not the... The, the fiddler on the roof. Jesus does the fiddler on the roof. This, this is not the, the younger throwing off the tradition of, of the older. It's a, it's a ridiculously youthful idea that, that somehow you don't need to listen to people that have lived longer than you and are wiser than you. I mean, that's just, that's just nuts. But it is a definitive guide on why focusing on the externals is sufficient and what that actually does to the Word of God whenever you do that, which is scary. I mean, the progression here is scary, and it ends with God's MRI of, of, of man's, man's heart. And, and I want to tell you, everyone in here is a legalist to, to some extent. Now, Pastor Brody has a joke. He's, he's not here this morning, but he has a joke about it. He wears this T-shirt under his suit that says, I am a legalist. It's, it's, a, it's just a tendency that, that, that not just PB has, but we all have. So, so don't sit there before you ever... Get to the text and start thinking, man, I can't wait to see how Jesus is going to set straight that group in the church that, that I think is too stiff. 
Or don't sit there and think, I'm going to turn my proverbial hearing aids off because I don't want to listen about how traditions are bad. If that's you, you need to repent before God even opens his, opens his mouth with his word. It's, because the word has one agenda, and that's the agenda that, that God's church needs the, the, this morning. And if you're here without Christ, you don't know the Lord, this passage tells you something very, very clearly. It tells you that religion will send you to hell. You're already headed there if you don't know Jesus. But, but it tells you religion is not the path to, to God. Worship from the heart is. Religion is nothing more than man's attempt to manipulate God in some way, to climb up some other way other than, other than, than Christ. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing passage of Scripture. Let me give you the, the, the outline. I say the theme is it clearly comes from, from verse 8, neglecting the commandments for, for externals. That's what they were doing. They, they were neglecting the truth of God, the commandments of God, and they were replacing it with the, with the externals. And people who do that, you, you, first of all, you investigate everyone. You'll see that in verses 1 through 4 by the scribes and Pharisees. And then you're going to see in verse 5 that, that you, you'll, you'll end up intimidating others. That's, that's what their, their intent is with, with Jesus, as if, you, as if you can intimidate the Son of God. Then you actually end up ignoring the commandments in verses 6 through 8, which is what Jesus does when he quotes Isaiah. And that leads to invalidating the Scriptures. I'll show you that probably next week in verses 9 through 13. And, and all that ends up with, with you inhibit. The, the truth from from actually reaching yourself and and reaching other people. We'll walk through these one by one. Traditionalists, externalists, legalists. I think you I'll use those terms interchangeably. All if you are one or you have a tendency to be one or when you do, I should say, because we all have that tendency. You investigate everyone. Look at verse one of chapter seven. I want you to pay close attention. To, to the way Mark begins this. Because traditionalists typically pay close attention to, to others. Verse 1, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from, from Jerusalem. Now, you, you just read over that verse, but that verse is packed with, with information. that you, You've been dragging along as we've been walking through, through Mark. It's following this general account of the ministry of Jesus at the end of chapter 6. Mark begins this new scene. And notice how Mark begins. He begins that the Pharisees and the scribes are gathered around him, and they had come from Jerusalem. Now, we know earlier in Mark, it's not good when a delegation comes from Jerusalem, right? I mean, the group is, is actually a team of investigators, specifically sent to look into a matter. If somebody comes up from Jerusalem to Galilee for a specific purpose... It was to look into a matter, and the last time that they did that, they gave their official declaration of Jesus in Mark chapter 3 that everything that he did, because they couldn't deny what he did, everything that Jesus did, he did by the power of the devil. They've already made their, they've already made their declaration. I mean, verse 1 is to emphasize this is confrontational. And you notice the presence here. They're, the, the scribes and the Pharisees are together. They're mentioned together. This is not a casual gathering. While they're mentioned together a lot in, in the Bible, you don't find these two groups on, on the playground together unless they're there to watch a fight. You know, I mean, everybody gathers to watch a fight. Most of the time they're starting a fight when you, when you see them together 
around, around Jesus. It's usually something sinister. And the scribes and, and, and the Pharisees, the scribes were the official experts of the law. You, you know, Ezra was the first scribe, right? I mean, after the, the, the captivity was over, they come back, they rediscover the law that, that, that's there. And Ezra, the scribe, gets out the law. He, he gives his heart to intently study the law, and that's the origin of the, of the scribes. They, they, they became the experts in the, in the law, in the, in the, the vein of, of, of Ezra. And they're also the ones that are called for the, for the expert witness if, if, there's, if there's some issue. And so that's the reason that they're, that they're here. And I want you to notice what it says. They, they gathered around him. It's, it's the word um, synagogatai, where you get the word synagogue. They synagogued around him. They, they gathered around in the sense of one place. It's, it's the idea of a gang. They, they're together. They're not normally together unless there's a purpose, and they gather around Jesus. And just to make sure that, that you don't miss that this is a hostile gathering, Mark says they came up from Jerusalem. And Jesus had drawn their attention earlier, and they, they'd come to, to investigate. And they're, they're always investigating someone. They're always investigating everyone. And I would say that's a... It's a common trait of people who major on the externals. People who focus on the externals are usually far more concerned with the behavior of others rather than the hearts of others. They're far more concerned with the behavior of, of others, and, and I would say far more concerned with the behavior of others than, than their own behaviors. And you usually find them scrutinizing something, and usually the scrutiny is quite, quite intense. They... They're typically the ones that have roving eyes in the, in the congregation. They're always aware when someone breaks a, breaks a norm. They can pick someone out of a crowd of 500 people that break a, break a norm just by, just by glancing and just by looking at it. And I'll, I'll let some of you off the hook this morning. Many of you come and you'll say, Pastor, I am so sorry. You know, I fell asleep this morning. I was, I was working on the midnight shift. Some of you just fall asleep because you're bored and you come and tell me because your conscience is bothering I have no idea whether you fall asleep, okay? I, I, I really don't. I see you. I pray for you. I come to the church even before we preach. I, I pray over your pews. I pray for you by name. But, but I am clueless as to whether you fall asleep during the, the service or not. People that are externalists can just look and they can just, right there, right there's one that, that doesn't meet the... The norm. They're the person that intentionally sits in the back of the church so they can watch if everyone else is what everyone else is doing, seeing if they're doing what they're supposed to do. They don't listen to the words of the songs. They put more attention to what people are doing who are who are, are singing. They investigate, but but it's always in a spiritually masked way. And this investigation is done with a stacked deck. I mean, this is not a real investigation. They've already drawn their conclusion back in Mark 3. They're not back a second time going, man, you know, maybe we were wrong. I mean, maybe after the feeding of the 25,000, Jesus actually is the Messiah. I mean, they've already drawn their conclusion. They're coming back for, for another round, and, and they think that they're going to find evidence that proves their earlier position. The purpose was they were coming to condemn. I also say legalists usually come in groups. You don't normally see a Pharisee coming to Jesus alone. If you do, they, they, a lot of times they get saved. 
They always come in groups. They're like Job's friends. And you'll find people who, who look into the spiritual walks of others usually do that with people who, who walk just like them. That's so they can all talk about what, what they see. And if they get outmatched or outgunned, then they find an expert, which is what the scribes are here for. They're, they're the expert. And I want you to notice that verse 2, because here they bring up the problem. Verse 2. They had seen that some of his disciples were eating bread with impure or defiled hands. That is unwashed. He'd seen some of the disciples. There's the investigation. Now the hostile gathering. And then in verse 3, Mark begins to explain for us, non-Jewish readers, for most of us, I would say, what unclean and defiled hands meant by explaining the religious tradition of hand washing. Verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the, of the elders. Explains this ritual cleansing. He says they don't eat unless they carefully wash their hands. This comes from the tradition of the elders. And he says that they don't just cleanse their hands, but also their whole bodies and their eating utensils, their cups, their pitchers, and their, and their plates. And that's what the leaders are asking the, the questions about. The leaders ask the question about eating bread, the disciples eating bread with, with unclean hands. And, and you can hear this, this, threatening, this threatening tone. This has nothing to do with hygiene. Don't think that, that they're primarily concerned that the disciples, like you do with your children, that they're going to eat with some germs on their hands. That's not what this is about at, at all. It's about ritual defilement. And it has its origins, the text specifically tells us, in the tradition of the elders. What, what is that? What are the traditions of the, of the elders? Well, not to give you a lesson on Judaism, but, but the, Judaism has the Torah, has the, the law, the, the law of Moses. It's got three components of what we would call the, the, the Old Testament. And, and then there, was, there were the, the traditions of the elders, the, the oral tradition. And that's now recorded in the Mishnah and several other other commentaries and books on how to apply that. But the tradition of the elders was an extra body of biblical rules, practices, interpretations that probably started with good intentions. The traditions of the elders. Now, again, this is, think of how long it's been since the law of Moses. This is where all of the rituals that you hear about come from. You can't touch a... You can't touch a reptile. You, you can't kill lice on the Sabbath. You know, all these things that we're, that we're, that we're talking about. After the, the law was given to Moses and was written down, the, the elders are, are, are really concerned about the people violating the law. And so they, they did what they called, they built a fence around the, the law, which was called the tradition of the elders. And they did that for good purpose. They don't want anybody to vi- violate the law. Here's the law. Let's build a fence around the law. Wherever the line is, let's step three or four places away from it. Let's build a, a traditional fence around it so no one will even come close to, to, to violating the, the, the law. And so year after year, generation after generation, tradition upon tradition was added until they had a very, very big fence And it took them further and further away from the true law, which was inside the fence, and therefore from God's intent, until they finally got to the point that the fence was all that you could see. They didn't even know what's inside the fence anymore. 
and became the fence becomes more important at that point than than the law it it was built around and the tradition then becomes the law and the means of worship and unfortunately it replaced scripture as the highest authority in in apostate Judaism in in Jesus's day and that is the purpose of John the Baptist coming and preparing the way for Christ was to remind them of the true intent that's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard, but I say unto you. It's not just applied to the external. It's not just if you, if you commit adultery outwardly. It's if you lust in your heart. The law, the law, the law is applied not only to the externals, but to the, to the internals. And they're only focused on the externals. And I would say if you look deep enough, you'll find legalism is always rooted in fear and pride. You think you're doing good, building a fence when you're actually doing harm. And the tradition that Mark explains here is pouring water out of a pitcher on hands and fingers pointed upward in one, one uh, moment, and then they're, they're poured downward, and, and that was just for the hands. And then there's a, another set of traditions for the cleansing of the... Uh, once you go get your food because you might have bumped into somebody that was unclean or you touched somebody that had touched somebody that was unclean and then you get home, you got to cleanse your plates or utensils that you're using all about the, the externals. And there's no place in the Bible that commands any of that. There's some common sense commands about washing and cleanliness, but the Pharisees actually took priestly regulations and made them obligatory for everyone. This is what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees practice Levitical purity. That, that's what this is. There's, there's, it's the idea that the priests, before they ministered in the temple, they had to do certain ritual cleansings. And that was all a shadow and a symbol to point to, to Christ. They took what was mandated in the temple and said, well, if that's going to make you holy in the temple, then it would be really holy if we did that before dinner, Right? I mean, you take it out of the temple and you bring it into to everyday life. And if, it's, if the priests have to do that, they're the, they're the holy ones. So if the priests do that, then, then we should be like the priests. We should all be holy. We should all do these things. They took the, the Levitical mandates of, for purity, reserved for temple life, and made it for, for all of, of life. And I'd say that's how legalism starts. It starts with a good intent. You don't want to break the law, so you build a fence around the law. Rather than trusting that what God has declared, God is big enough and able enough to correct his own people, including bringing discipline whenever we violate the law. It, 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 it's, it's the idea that if, if you do this, in a, if God commands this in a specific area in a specific way, then I should apply that to all of life rather than trusting God build his own boundaries around the, the responsibilities and the the mandates that he gives in, in Scripture. You think that that makes you holy, but it actually makes you unholy. Because when you do that, you're adding to God's Word. You're going beyond the text. Legalism seems to be more spiritual, but it actually makes you less spiritual. It actually defiles you, rather than keeping you from defilement. Because you're adding to God's Word, and then ultimately that turns into adding to God's work, which is the big issue. The big problem. What's the one work that we're commanded to do in the Bible? And even that's not a work. Believe, right? Believe on the Son. And that's faith. This is a system that the disciples were, were breaking. 
And the religious leaders were calling Jesus on it. Secondly, you, you'll end up intimidating. Look at verse, verse 5. After this explanation, Mark brings us back to, to, the, to the issue at hand. He brings us back to the scene. He takes us away to explain and then brings us back in verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes ask him. So they gather. They've done their investigation. They're gathered for an investigation. <clears throat> and now they speak. They apply pressure. As a group, they appeal to tradition, and then they assert it's a spiritual matter. The scribes and the Pharisees in verse 5 asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Notice the declaration. They declared that it's, that it's impure. Mark brings us back to the investigation, and now there's this confrontation. They apply pressure as a group. They... They appeal to tradition, they break the tradition of the elders, and they assert it's a spiritual matter. They're, they eat with, them, they eat with them pure, impure hands. And that's a loaded question if there ever was one, right? I mean, the purpose is, is, is intimidation. They come as a group, they don't come alone, they want to use fear to get him to obey their traditions. Notice it says, why do your disciples not walk according to the elders? That's a backhanded way of accusing Jesus. They're confronting Jesus on his failure to support the oral law, the tradition of the elders. They're confronting Jesus as the teacher for having disciples that are not obeying the, the, the traditional norms that, that, that were there. He was refusing to toe the party line. He was leading others astray in their mind, and he needs rebuked. And they are implying your teaching leads to this. And if you don't stop them, you're guilty. That's, that's, what they're, that's what they're implying. <clears throat> and he uses this word, the tradition of the elders. It's a dominant word in the whole passage. It's used five times. And you know one of the most basic things about interpretation is whatever is repeated over and over and over you pay attention to. Five times it's the, it's the, the word tradition is used. And the argument that they were, were having was not about Scripture. And that's the point. The argument that they're having is not about Scripture. Why do your disciples not walk, not live their lives, not keep in step with the tradition of the elders? The argument, the confrontation is not about Scripture, but it's about tradition. And sadly, I would say that 95% of the arguments that I've seen participated in that probably have taken place in a Baptist church is not about tradition. It's about it's about uh, not about Scripture. Uh, scripture, it's about tradition, right? While we claim as Baptists to believe in the authority of Scripture, Scripture alone is our sole authority. And the gospel binds us as, as the basis. Now, now, here's a legitimate question. Is Jesus against tradition? Is tradition somehow bad? Should we just come in here every Sunday and do things differently every time? And the answer to that is no, Jesus is not against tradition. And tradition can be very, very good. It is very, very good. I just got back from my annual family vacation and we went to the beach. And I don't know how many years we've been to the same place. And we talked about how that was a comfort. We go back to the same place and, and we typically eat at the same restaurants. And that's a, that's, that's a, it's a wonderful thing. Tradition can be a, a great thing. Singing the same songs, meeting at the same time, having the same 
services, the same time every year. But those things are those things are not inscripturated. They're not Bible. They have zero authority on our lives. And you can't apply any authority to to those things. That's why I like to encourage people to go on short term mission trips. Because when you go on short term mission trips, you get outside of your cultural bubble and you're you're worshiping with other believers that may be banging on drums or praying with their hands in the air or whatever it is, and yet you know these are genuine believers because your spirit's bearing witness and they're trusting in the same gospel, and you've got this perplexing issue that you don't know what to do with. They're breaking all of my traditional norms, what makes me comfortable, but they're believers. How can that be? forces you to deal with, with what is biblical and what is just American subculture. Jesus is not railing against traditions Jesus is appealing to to is is appealing against extra biblical sources and putting them on the same level as the bible or judging someone else's spirituality by them what did the group conclude look at verse 5 they asked him why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders they appeal to tradition not scripture and then they draw a conclusion and they eat their bread with defiled hands. They don't say, do you think this defiles them? They already draw the conclusion. It's defiled hands. The disciples were impure. They were spiritually defiled. And that meant that they were disobeying God. They're defiled before Him. And that meant Jesus was encouraging them to disobey God. You see that? The Pharisees took the law that was for the priests applied it to everyone, added some things to it, then made it a mandate, and declared, if you don't do this, you're disobeying God, and you're violating the law. And they had a text for it. I've never met anyone who has a serious conviction, even those that go beyond the text, that can't give me a Bible verse to back it up. But the point is not having a Bible verse to back it up. Is that God's intent for that Bible verse? Is that God's intention for that text? They had a Bible verse, which was Leviticus. And right here it says the priest, and they made the connection that if this was good for the priest, then surely it's good for us, and therefore they're off to, off to the races. But notice how Jesus answers them in verse 6. You think Jesus was some milk toast? Little sissy boy? No, you're right. He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written. The gloves are off, aren't they? The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their externals, they seem to honor me, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. I'll lead you to ignore the commandments. That's what Jesus says here. This is the issue of the heart. It was an issue of worship, vain. And it was an issue of neglect. It's right there. It's right in the passage. 
Jesus says, Isaiah described people like you very well. And then he quotes Isaiah. And Jesus responds with Isaiah by calling them hypocrites. Now, I want you to notice where Jesus appeals. He's God. He can speak, and it's authoritative, right? That's what the people said. We hear him speak, and he doesn't speak like the scribes and elders. They're quoting other people. I mean, Jesus speaks with authority. He could have said anything that he wanted, but where does Jesus appeal? He models for them the very thing that they should be doing. He appeals to the written word. He appeals to the very thing that they violate, and the passage is particularly cutting. He calls them hypocrites on the basis of it. On Isaiah 29, 13. If you want a definition of what a hypocrite is, it's right here. You don't have to guess. This is it. Jesus calls them hypocrites because there's a contradiction between what seems to be in the opinion of others and what a person is before God. The people honor me with their lips, with the, the outer, and yet their heart is is far from me. Isaiah gives a contrast between their lips and their heart, between what they say and what they truly believe. It's a difference between their doing and their being. Their hearts were, were far from me, Jesus says. Jesus says true spirituality is when the heart matches the lips, if you want to turn it around. It's, it's when your being matches your, your, your doing. Right? Many will say unto me, Many will say, Lord, Lord, but he who does the will of my Father enters the kingdom. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in truth, we lie and yet do not the truth. We walk in darkness and do not the truth. Now I want you to notice he increases his severity in verse 7. But in vain they worship me. God gives the verdict on, on a person who does this. Does he receive their worship? He says it's not true worship. In vain. They worship me. You think about how shocked the Pharisees were when they, when they finally got before, before the Lord. It's outward. It's, it's not inward. It's vain. It's empty of true worship. It's like playing spiritual air guitar. You can go to many places where Jesus affirms it, but I think one of the most obvious is this, this, this amazing scene where Jesus runs into the the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. You remember that scene in John 4? And you remember he, he draws the water and, and he, he asks her the question about, about who she's with. Is this your husband? And he, she says, no, it's not. I've, I've had all these and the one that's with me is not, not my husband. And he says, you, you attest it rightly. And he talks about spiritual water. We've been talking about living bread and that's the the spiritual water, and Jesus says, if you drink the water that I have to offer, you'll never thirst again. And she says, give me this water. He makes the declaration that, that he's the Messiah. And you remember what, what she says? She says, the worship of the Messiah must happen in a specific place. It's on this mountain, and the Jews say on that mountain. And, and Jesus says the worship of the Messiah has nothing to do with, with the location. The location is irrelevant he says worship happens in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter whether you worship on that mountain or on this mountain. It doesn't matter the location. It doesn't matter the style. It doesn't matter the posture of worship. That's, that's irrelevant. It doesn't affect worship. What, what affects worship? True worship is from the heart. It's in spirit and it's in truth. That's what he's saying in, in that. 
And you must be regenerate to offer true worship to God. Born again, regenerate people rejoice in truth. And that's the basis of their, of their worship. They don't care whether they do it in, in this building. They don't care whether they do it in the, in the old building. They, they don't care whether you do it on Sunday morning or Sunday night. They don't, they don't care where it is or when it is. They don't care how you're dressed. In, 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 with some boundaries, obviously, you should have some clothes on anyway. Their issue is the heart. And genuine believers want to hear the word. And genuine believers want to gather with other believers. They love the brethren. Genuine believers want to pray. Genuine believers want to give. Genuine believers want to, want to worship. And God receives their, their worship. Why? Because the Spirit's transformed them. What was our worship before we came to Christ? Filthy rags. What's our worship now after? It's a sweet aroma to the Lord because Jesus has cleansed us from all of our sins. So a saved person hears this passage of Isaiah, and they would say in their heart, I don't want to add to the text. I don't want to go beyond the bounds of Scripture. I want to worship God in truth. And a hypocrite person like the Pharisees doesn't have that reaction. They're, they're angry that you would even bring up that thought that it might not be their way. And they'd probably rail against the person who, who brings it up. Jesus draws the application, the theme of the passage, at least this first half in verse 8. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of, of men. He says the actual commandments in Scripture are being ignored, ignored, even rejected because of, of, of human tradition. Listen. If you focus on loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving others as yourself, you won't have time to worry about what anybody else is doing. That'll consume all of your time. I promise you, you'll come up short even doing that. If you focus on coming to, to church and hearing the Word, you focus on praying, you focus on, on obeying what you know the Bible says to you, you won't have any time to worry about adding anything to the Bible what else you'll find? You'll find that you're cut to the quick and about that tall before the Lord and you'll need to run to the gospel. The word neglect means de facto. It was a de facto neglect of the weightier matters of God's law. And that's why legalism can be so dangerous because when you hold to the traditions of men, it, it ends up leading to the neglect of the, the commandments of God. It, it's not adding to the commandments. It's not insulating the commandments. It's the ultimate replacement theology. I had a professor say once, the external law code is not bad. It's just substandard for a spirit and dwelt believer. The believer with the Spirit of God desires to please God. They don't need a code to provoke them to do that. In fact, the code can't provoke them to do that. That's what Paul says. Law can't justify anyone. It only increases sin because our hearts are sinful, which is why Jesus says to the Pharisees, the, you, you add to these people undue burdens. And that's why he could say, take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. 
this light. I'll give rest for your souls, for anyone who will, who will come to me. When you use traditions in place of scriptures, you inadvertently neglect the very thing that you're trying to, to uphold. Tradition is not bad. But it's damning if it becomes what the Christian life's all about. And you know, sometimes it's really, really hard to tell the the difference. I mean, I'm a, I'm examining my own heart as I'm approaching this text, and I'm thinking, okay, what what's what's good and what's bad? I, I mean, you just throw everything out, and the answer is obviously no. And and, and I'm going, is that something that I'm holding? Am I demanding this in addition to, to the Bible? And you know, that's the point. The point that is, is I'm willing to do that. The point is the Word is making me evaluate myself, not evaluate others, right? That's what it does. The difference between tradition that's good and tradition that becomes bad is, is when it's attached to the gospel, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, so we constantly need to place ourselves under Scripture, under preaching, so that the, the Word can, can clarify and build, deepen. I mean, you think about it. In one place, the Jerusalem Council passes a, a judgment about the Gentiles. The Gentiles are coming into the faith. And in one place, they, they say, no, the Gentiles must not be circumcised. That's not a requirement for the gospel. But they also, but they should abstain from eating meat that's filled with blood not to offend the Jews. It's a tradition. It's wiped out. So in one sense, they're saying, no, they shouldn't be circumcised, but they should do this, which is extra biblical, if you will. Why, what, what, what's the defining point? In one point, Paul tells Timothy, Paul has Timothy circumcised. In another point, he publicly rebukes Peter for sitting with the Jews rather than the Gentiles. Tradition's upheld in one place, and it is, it's excoriated in another. What's, why? Because when tradition is, is kept as unto the Lord, it's respected. But the moment that it's attached to the gospel, Jesus will rip your face off. He will. Because empty traditions make vain worship. Jesus does the same thing in the way he deals with people. The, the woman at the well who's in sin and broken and has a need, he is compassionate and he reaches out to her and to the scribes and Pharisees. He doesn't even give them an opportunity to, to explain. He calls them hypocrites and kicks them in the teeth because he sees their heart. The moment that's attached to the gospel, you'll feel the Lord's full rebuke, and we should.